This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Well, the first reading this morning um, is from Luke chapter 18 and beginning at the verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. Deep breath, it's a long one. <laughs> I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and, glo and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God, knew, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but to receive it into our hearts and show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I remember as a very young boy sitting down to eat dinner with my family when I was told that the meal that we were eating was our own duck. Hours earlier, it had been quacking away. Now it was a delicious duck stew. That was probably the first time it really sunk in for me, the notion of death, in particular animal death. And often as a family, we would visit the cemetery a couple of times a year. I used to think it was actually the most boring trip. We would drive for ages, and when we got there, we would all stand around silently and stare at a plaque. It was my grandpa. I never met him. He died before I was born. But it dawned on me then that I would need to face my own mortality eventually. And so I remember in the car home, the trip home, we were discussing as a family what happens when we die. It was Cicero who famously argued that the main task of philosophy is to teach us how to face death. Mortality and death, says Cicero, necessarily creates fears and unfulfilled desires and sadness. 
And so the purpose of philosophy is to give people relief from these things. The contemporary French philosopher Luc Ferry believes that Cicero's definition of philosophy cannot be bettered. So how are we to face our own mortality? Often in our day and age, Ferry notes that many secular people think that death should not even be given a second thought. Why bother with such a pointless problem, one that is inevitable? But Faree replies, this way of operating is just too brutal, to be honest. Can you honestly say that you have no dread of a future state that will strip you of everything you hold dear now? Do your loved ones mean so little to you that you don't care about being separated from them? But this stripping away of meaning begins even before we die. Suffering and evil are an ever-present fog that haunts us. Death and all its consequences robs us of loves, joys, comforts that we rely on to give life meaning. And so on the great summit of Paul's argument in Romans 8, the great task of philosophy is confronted. And Paul meets it with an unrivaled, unparalleled, sure and secure Christian hope. Indeed, for the Christian, these are things that cannot be touched by anything. Not even suffering, not even evil, and yes, not even death itself. And so to outline where Paul is taking us, if you uh, open up your, the sermon outlines that should be in your booklets, um, Paul is considering our present groanings, our future hope, the Spirit's help, our calling and assurance, and finally, to consider the unquenchable love of God. But firstly, our present groanings. Paul begins this section in Romans 8, from verse 18, by considering the state of our present condition, our sufferings. From verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He contrasts the present groanings and the future hope of glory. Suffering is real. Suffering is present. Being a Christian does not mean you will not suffer. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus Christ suffered not that so we would never suffer, but that when we suffer, we would be like him. Verse 17, last week, pointed this out. His suffering would lead to glory. Our path of suffering follows in the footsteps of our Saviour, and it will lead to glory. But presently we suffer. And Paul says, says this in, that, in, in verse 18. It's, it's not that our present sufferings, they're small. They're not small, but rather that the eternal glory in store for us is so vast. Your suffering may be weighty, like a concrete backpack hauling you down. But imagine the concrete backpack on one end of a scale and on the other is the sun, the weight of the sun and its glory. It's like that. When your present suffering is compared to the eternal glory, it's incomparable. The unshakable blessings of God's kingdom of eternal life, everlasting happiness, endless beauty, unbroken relationships, it's incomparable. Our sufferings are like a drop in the ocean. There's a glory to come that will make your current pain seem insignificant. 
If you know that future glory is coming, it will help you to live in the present. Meanwhile, Paul says, there is groaning. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There's a groaning in creation and there's a groaning in us as we groan inwardly. The world is not the way it should be. Everything is longing for the world to be put right. Death is not natural. It's not the way that God had made it from the very beginning. Sin has so corrupted every fiber of this creation. Like cut flowers, it is decaying. Creation, in verse 21, experiences a bondage to get to decay. Our bodies are mortal, in verse 23, waiting for its redemption. The promise is that one day we will be saved. One day we will be adopted. One day, too, creation will be restored, a new creation liberated, glorious. Meanwhile, there's this tension, and theologians call this a, a now but not yet reality. Now, now we have been justified. The Christian has been justified in Christ. We have peace with God. We've been forgiven, set free from the powers of sin and death. We've been adopted, we heard last week. But not yet. We also wait, await the fullness of this reality, when we are saved, when we receive the fullness of, of our adoption, when our bodies are redeemed. I think one of the challenges for us is that we live in such a beautiful and resource-rich part of the world. Do we actually believe that there is something better in store for us? That the glory that is to come far outweighs what we experience now? When we pray the Lord's Prayer each week, your kingdom come. Do we actually mean it? Are we developing a kind of homesickness for heaven? Of course, we shouldn't be so heavenly minded that we are off no earthly good, but I suppose that's possible. But I haven't met anyone like that yet. Groaning is not an expression of happiness and satisfaction with our current situation, but of a longing of the world to come when God will wipe away every tear, when we will be saved, when we are home. And so, point two, we await a future hope, one that we do not have yet, but is so sure and certain. This hope is not to be seen as some kind of wishful thinking, some kind of pie in the sky for when we die. It is a sure hope, anchored in history, coming from Jesus Christ and his victory over death. And all the promises that flow from that. In verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. It was the Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that he emphasizes the necessity of hope for the living. In his harrowing account of his three years' experience in a Nazi death camp, he observed how his fellow prisoners were able to endure the horror while others could not. The difference was hope. The prisoners who gave up on life, who had lost all hope for a future, were inevitably the first to die. They died lack 
less from a lack of food or a lack of medicine than from a lack of hope, a lack of something to live for. We need hope to live. And we can find hope in this world, but it has its limits, and sooner or later, we will reach those limits. But the Apostle Paul speaks of a hope that nothing in this life can take away from us, a sure and secure hope. And it transforms the way we are to live now. We can patiently endure, verse 25, because we have this hope. It's not going to be easy, but there will be times when, when, when we do not have the strength, but God doesn't leave us as orphans. He does not abandon us. He gives us his spirit. And this is my third point. The spirit helps us. God's spirit is living in us, breathing life in our mortal bodies, bringing us power and comforting us in the midst of suffering and sorrows. He brings assurance in the midst of doubt. Verse 26. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. He prays for us in our hearts, on our behalf, in accordance with God's will. There are often times when I don't know where to begin with when I come to God in prayer, especially through suffering. We won't understand exactly why God, why is this happening? We may even pray for things that might not be best for us. But we don't need to despair. God's spirit is with us. He's helping us. He's praying on our behalf. Even in suffering, God does not abandon us. Instead, he helps us. He comforts us. Paul now tells us that we are called and assured from verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works good. All things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things. Those who love God and have been called by him, God works all things for their good. Which means that even through suffering, God can bring about good. But we need to be very careful in defining this good. What do we mean by this good? Because if we mean that in everything God works to bring about material wealth or physical well-being, then we will be sorely disappointed. We need to define good in God's terms. God knows our greatest good is to enjoy him, to know him, and to love him forever. C.S. Lewis, when his wife Joy had cancer, and it was beginning to take its toll, wrote to a friend saying, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Our joy in this life is not that we will never face difficulties, but that rather whatever difficulties come our way, our loving Father will bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination. We may find it hard that God can work good out of evil and suffering, but I think you only need to look at the cross to understand and to catch a glimpse. There you see the clearest pattern of God's work, there, the most horrendous evil in all of human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, led to the most wonderful hope, the salvation and eternal life of many. 
Paul continues to reassure us in verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's an unbreakable chain of God's promise in bringing uh, his, his servant to salvation. That God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. From the very beginning to the very end, our assurance of ultimate safety and victory rests in God's promise to us. Because if we have been justified by faith through a simple act of trust now, we will also be glorified. And we can look back and also know that God has predestined and called us. It is that secure, all wrapped in God's perfect, sovereign plans and purposes. And so how confident can we be that God is for us? Which brings me to my final point, God's unquenchable love for us. And Paul pitches a series of questions to show us just how certain we can be. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Are you that sure? Are you that confident that when you stand before God, you will not be condemned? Well, yes, you can be that confident. Verse 34, because Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, he who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus died, he rose to life, and he's right now interceding for us at God's right hand. You can be that confident that he is for you now and he will be for you into the future. As the hymn goes, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ, Paul asks? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is a resounding no. You could make your own list and ask the same question. Can this, can these separate me from the love of God in Christ? And the answer is a resounding no. At the age of 12, the reality of death hit, hit, hit personally, hit home for me. My mother had battled with cancer for many years, but about a year and a half before she died, she became a Christian. There was a piece about the way that she faced her death that I will never forget. I mean, I remember seeing her crying. It wasn't easy, but she knew of the love of God she knew of the resurrection to eternal life. She knew of the hope of glory. It was only after my conversion at 20 that I really understood this sure and secure hope that she had in the risen Christ. We can be assured that God loves us in Christ. We can be absolutely certain of this. And Paul bursts the limits of language to show us that nothing, completely nothing, Downright nothing can separate us from the love of God in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Once you give yourself to God through Christ, he is yours and you are his. Nothing can ever change that. Nothing. Suffering and death will sting, but it cannot uproot and overthrow us because our sufferings cannot touch the main thing, which is God and his love for us and the salvation he has in store for us. But Paul, ever the realist, knows that this ultimate victory may lie many years ahead, years that will be filled with pain, anxiety, distress, injustice. But nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. I don't know if you know, but Michael Jensen was a banned author by the New South Wales Department of Education. I know, right? Michael Jensen's a baddie. His book referenced martyrdom and the classroom material had a testimony of someone dying from cancer. Michael defended himself online, on Facebook. I do a lot of my research on Facebook, by the way. And he commented, the particular blasphemy was in believing in life after death and acting accordingly. Dangerous stuff. We leave our society blindsided and bereft of hope. As, as Ferry observes with um, our secular age, when we avoid thinking about this subject of suffering and death. Christianity offers an alternative. This world is not all there is. The sufferings of this world will one day pass like a fleeting shadow. As Tolkien's character in The Lord of the Rings, Samwise, answers... It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun rises, sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. Darkness must pass, and darkness will pass. I don't know exactly what you've been through, what you were going through, or what you will go through. But my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, take heart. In Christ, we live with the real hope, an eternal, unshakable hope found in the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.